0: stand a word of prayer lord jesus you are the first and the last the beginning and the end the alpha and the omega you are the same yesterday and forever now be the same to us be faithful and true to us today Speak to us from your word, by your spirit we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, has suffered rather badly, both at the hands of its critics and at the hands of its friends its critics find uh, two uh, problems in particular with it. Firstly, they accuse it of being incomprehensible, um, containing some kind of code to which we lost the key a long time ago. And so when they read of things like a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, they say, that's ridiculous, whoever heard of such a thing. Or, the critics say, well, we do understand it, but we don't like what we see and what we read here. The book of Revelation, they say, is sub-Christian, full of pagan ideas, such as people coming along and washing their robes in blood and making their robes white thereby. Isn't that a stupid and sub-Christian and really rather pagan concept? Of course, the problem there is that, although the imagery may be uh, be different, uh, such uh, ideas uh, are very much taught uh, in the rest of the Bible, and including from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. As for the friends of Revelation, well, they have over the years sometimes become over-enthusiastic in their zeal to find Uh, more meaning sometimes, and more detail than there actually is. And so they have tended to come up with detailed timetables of events, especially future events, uh, in uh, in defiance of the one, Jesus Christ, who expressly said, don't try to set dates and times. Even I, he said, don't know the exact date and time. How can you... Possibly. This uh, difficulty at the hands of critics and friends alike has led sensible people like you and me sometimes to uh, treat the, revela- the Book of Revelation with a-, a good deal of caution. Uh, each of those three great reformers of the Church, uh, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, and Zwingli, each had um, a-, a-, a great deal of hesitation. Uh, about this book, as though uh, reading it might end up doing more harm uh, than good. But um, I'm pleased to say that uh, believing uh, uh, Christians and scholars and thinkers and Bible students in in more recent years have come to, uh, I think, a very uh, helpful understanding of what this book's me uh, what this book means. Um, I mean, just to give a few uh, little. Uh, Hints as to how we might approach this book generally, let me just mention the following. Everything in this book is symbolic. The pictures are symbolic. The numbers are symbolic. The number three, the number seven, the 144,000, the 1,000 years, the so-called millennium, are symbolic. Everything is symbolic. Secondly, realize that no one symbol paints the complete picture. In fact, this book, one of the wonderful things this book does is to combine symbols in a way that would be literally impossible. Um, And there are several of those in what we'll be considering uh, over the next uh, few minutes, so I'll leave those for the examples later. But combining things that, literally speaking, could not be combined. Oh, here's an obvious one. Um, In in chapter uh, chapter 5, there is one who is first of all described as a lion who, when John looks more closely, sees a lamb. How do you visualise that? (laughs) Uh, But it's combining two important truths because neither one of them, the lion and the lamb on its own, would give you uh, the full truth. The third thing I'd say in uh, generally approaching the Revelation is to compare Scripture with Scripture. The book of Revelation draws deeply from the wells of Scripture, not just the prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah, Uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah comes in here as well, but also Genesis, the Psalms, and has lots of resonances and echoes of the Gospels and indeed of the teaching of Paul and of Peter um, and uh, and of letters of John. So if you want to check out your understanding of the picture language that's used in Revelation, ask the rest of the scripture. Can you explain that to us, please? And it usually can. And then my fourth uh, preliminary point is, with regard to understanding this book generally, is to appreciate its overall purpose, which I think is this. The purpose of the Revelation is to strengthen God's people especially in times of adversity and persecution, and to reassure them of Christ's ultimate victory and their ultimate safety. Let me say that again. The purpose of the Revelation is to strengthen God's people, especially in times of adversity and persecution, and to reassure them of Christ's ultimate victory and their ultimate safety. If you use that as a signpost, then I think you won't go very far wrong. We'll disagree about some of the details, that's fine, but we'll get the main point. And it's my prayer that we get the main point of the passage we're now about to look at together. Now, I had originally been given chapter six to cover with you this morning, and my initial plan was to cut that down to a shorter uh, part uh, of uh, within chapter six. In the end, I've decided to cover, wait for it, chapters four, five, six, and seven, and take a rapid run through because I think the big picture is actually more important and more helpful to see than all the details. So turn with me, please, to uh, Revelation chapter four and five and six, which can be conveniently found on pages one two three six and one two three seven. In the church Bibles, although we will be turning over to glance at uh, chapter seven as well, relations four to seven, page starting on page one thousand two hundred thirty-six. Fasten your seatbelts, and we'll take off. In chapter four, uh, chapter four, uh, very briefly, because Alan uh, Strange spoke uh, uh, from this chapter last Sunday morning. If you he were here, in chapter four, we have a vision of a throne. Telling us, reassuring us, that at the centre of the universe, there is a throne. Our God reigns. This universe is not simply some accidental co-location of atoms. That's the word of Bertrand Russell. Nor does it simply stare back at us, this universe, with blind, pitiless indifference. That's the words of Professor Dawkins. At the heart of the universe is a throne. And on that throne is our God. That's chapter four. Okay so far? (laughs) Chapter five, we find that the one who is on the throne, God, has a scroll in his hand. That's verse one. This scroll I take to be God's master plan for the world's destiny. Full of writing, this scroll. A plan for the world's destiny. But the scroll is sealed with seven seals. It's rolled tightly shut. Who is worthy to break those seals and to open the scroll? And to implement God's plan. No angel in heaven, no saint on earth was equal to the task. But then we hear that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And John turns and he looks and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb who bears all the marks of having been slaughtered and yet is alive. One who has been crucified yet has risen triumphantly. He has the right, he has the authority to open up that scroll and to implement God's plan. That's chapter 5. Now for chapter 6 in a little bit more detail. The scroll has seven seals, and I'm now going to say something about the first six, because the seventh seal segues into the next section of the book, and actually the seventh seal leads into seven trumpets, and that's moving things on. So fat, you think there are seven seals, but he only mentions six, that's the reason. Um, seals numbers one to four, which is chapter six, verses one to eight. First of all, um, as that seal is broken, as the first seal is broken, there rides forth a white horse, the white horse of imperial conquest. And then as the second seal is broken, there rides forth a second horse, the red horse of violence and war. The third seal is broken, and galloping out out is the black horse of famine and hardship. And then the fourth seal is broken, and there comes out the pale horse of disease and death. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the four, the, four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are they. Except because the word apocalypse, especially these days, tends to point us straight towards the end of the world and the final end of everything, I prefer you to think about these things, if you don't mind, not so much the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but the four horsemen of history. Because, in fact, these four Horses With conquest and war and famine and death, we're riding out in John's day, and they continue to ride out in our own day. Colin has just alluded to today's news. Today's news includes news in Belfast, police chief condemns riot anarchy. In Somalia, UK aid seized by militants. In Sri Lanka, Buddhist mob attacks mosque. In Egypt, al Hazar seeks reconciliation. In Greece, a riot and a migrant detention camp. Kenya, police looting in fire is probed. And in Yemen, two are killed in a drone strike. Yes, these horsemen are very much galloping around the world this very day. But they are under the sovereign control of the lamb. For each of these seals, it's as the lamb opens the seal. They do not move an inch until they are commanded to come. Verses 1, 3, 5 and 7. They are powerless to do anything until they have been given power. Look at verses 4 and 8, for example. So it's not so much that the Lamb calls these calamities into existence. After all, they're mainly um, self-inflicted disasters. It's we who kill one another but rather that the lamb controls them and limits them and bends them to his own purposes. And as the stricken lamb, he knows well how to turn, how to bend disaster to his own higher purposes. Does he not? Isn't that exactly what happened? On the cross of Calvary, on the cross, God took the very worst evil that men could conceive and turned it into a triumph of God's grace and purpose. Friends, we live in a world ravaged by calamity and disaster. There's no escaping to some perfect relationship into some perfect home, into some, uh, over to some perfect holiday, to some perfect job, and think we can, uh, can escape the common sadnesses and setbacks and pain of humanity. But, and since they are common to humanity, these things, then we share in that common humanity. And as Christians, blessed in so many ways as we are, then as we have been singing... In that most recent song, we seek to bring God's grace to a suffering world and turn brokenness into beauty. Seal number five, chapter six and verses nine to eleven. Now, in addition to the troubles that are common to the whole human race, now we have the sufferings of the persecuted church. And again, as uh, uh, I think it was uh, Colin, uh, I think Colin mentioned, the continuing persecution of Christians is one of the world's most under-reported stories. More Christians, I'm sure you know this fact, more Christians were killed for their faith during the 20th century than during the previous 19 centuries together. While we are here in church this morning, another. Dozen or so will be beheaded, shot, stabbed, or beaten to death because they are Christians, because of their witness to Jesus Christ. And we hear in verse 10 the voices of those who have already died, the Christian martyrs, crying out to God, how long? How much longer must this go on for? This needless bloodshed of your people, of your dear ones. How long are you going to let it go on for? And a reply comes to those uh, martyrs sheltered beneath the altar. The reply comes, wait or rest a little longer. Seal number six. Verses 12 and following in chapter 6. And this is a truly apocalyptic vision. Picking up language first from Isaiah, also mentioned by our Lord, this kind of language in Matthew 24 and um, uh, Mark 13, for example. The language uh, really of the day of the Lord. The sky darkens. The moon turns blood red. The stars fall to the ground. The earth shudders with a violent earthquake. And this disaster is no respecter of persons. Do you see in verse 15? The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. And you know what terrifies the most is not the earthquake the falling stones they would prefer to place themselves at the mercy of an avalanche of rocks than see the face of god and are encountering the lamb this same god who loved them so much that he sent his only son for them now becomes an object of terror. Is that not the ultimate tragedy? And we left. Uh, Doreen left us on a knife edge, on a on a cliff edge, with the closing words of uh, chapter six. Who can stand? The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who indeed? Well, this is why, because it's such a cliffhanger, the end of chapter 6, why I very much wanted to go into chapter uh, 7 with you. Who can stand, well, we read in chapter 7 of verse 3, of the servants of God. Uh, uh, A group of people, a body of people, uh, whose foreheads have been marked with a seal. They belong. They are protected because they've been marked with a seal. As scripture elsewhere says, the Lord knows those who are his. Let me just very quickly from chapter 7 just run through some of the characteristics of this group of people, the servants of God. Their number I believe that uh, the two numbers, or that you reference the number in this chapter, are both describing the same body of people. In verse 4, it's 144,000, an exact number known to God. Um, 144,000, the completeness of the people of God, the true circumcision, the Israel of God, all believers, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, rich and poor. Altogether, God knows. An exact number known to God. But that same group of people is referred to differently in verse 9. From our perspective, a great multitude that no one could count. So an exact number known to God, but a vast number far bigger than you or I could conceive. Do you remember that God promised to Abraham that his seed would be as innumerable as the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore? That's the quantity, that's the measure of who in the final day of reckoning, when the final roll call is taken, who will be amongst the people, the servants of God. That's something about their number. In verse 9, their diversity from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Let us rid our minds of any ideas that a certain kind of person, a certain ethnic group, those with a certain religious background, are too far away from the grace of God to be worth evangelising, worth speaking to, worth praying for. No, all people groups will be represented. That's their diversity. You see also in verse 9, their victory. They are wearing white robes and waving palm branches, a picture of victory. They have triumphed. In verse 14, their purity. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are pure, but they are purified by... Now, the blood of the lamb stands for the death of Christ as a sacrifice for sin. And that's where we go to the cross for cleansing, for forgiveness, and for fitness to be counted as a servant of God. Their service... In verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him. Oh, wouldn't you like to know how you will how be spending those years, those centuries, those millennia of service? So little we know, but it will be full, active and fulfilled service of God. Do you notice, to their safety? In verses 1 to 3, the winds of judgment do not touch them. And in verse 15, he who is on the throne will spread his tent over them. His glory, which is so terrifying to those who hate God, is the very protection for those who belong to God. Their very protection. In verse 14, their history, they have come out of the great tribulation. I regard the great tribulation as being equivalent to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of this present time. And as we noted before, some Christians are continuing to suffer terribly. But they've come out of that. They suffer terribly no more. Do you see in verse 16, their comfort, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. And then perhaps most wonderfully of all in verse 17, their care. How are they cared for? Well, the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just think about that. The God, and it's a fearful thing for the unbeliever to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. But God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The lamb, a shepherd. Isn't that a strange but wonderful picture? But then this idea of the Almighty God wiping every tear from that—it's as though some servants of God will enter glory, will enter heaven, still with tears around their eyes because they've they've suffered so much, and God will stoop down and will say to them, "There, there. It's okay now." It's a very maternal, a very motherly, motherly picture of almighty god in the face of continued suffering and persecution christ's martyrs were crying out how long towards the end of chapter 6 we do not know how long they will be kept Waiting, we have been been forbidden to create timetables and timelines of the end end things. But we do know, excuse me, we do know why they have been kept waiting. Uh, Peter tells about this, talks about this in his second epistle and chapter three, when he talks about these events, the Lord's uh, creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, God has promised uh, to do that, but the Lord is not slow in keeping that promise. The reason he hasn't fulfilled that promise yet is that he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, we do not have unlimited time to tell the ungodly, of what they're missing and what Jesus offers to them. And they do not have unlimited time in which to trust. Things are moving towards their conclusion, their consummation and their completion. We must hurry. Let us pray. Our gracious God, here was another reading where it must have been difficult for the reader to say, this is the word of the Lord, and for us to respond, thanks be to God. But we thank you that judgment is the work of your left hand. It is your unusual work. It's not your your normal work, that you're more given to forgiveness and grace and mercy than you are to judgment. And in the end, those who are judged because they bring it upon themselves, because they do not want to know you. They do not want to serve you. O oh Lord, give us your compassion for the lost and your zeal to be more and more the servants of God that you have called us to be. Amen.